You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This is an area where bipartisan cooperation is is available, and it's important for our collective security. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben has the story of a proposed Montana state law to ban TikTok. I've got the story of the FTC taking action against an Amazon merchant. And later in the show, Ben's conversation with Alana Cohen of HackerOne to discuss President Biden's cyber strategy and national budget allocations for cybersecurity. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories to cover this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So for my story, we take a trip up to the great state of Montana, Big Sky Country. Mm-hmm. If you've never been there, it is spectacular. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend Glacier National Park. <laughs> uh, but our story concerns a proposed state law that would ban TikTok entirely within the state of Montana. Hmm. This has passed the state house and the state senate, so it is on the desk of the governor, Greg Gianforte, who is deciding sometime in the next 10 days whether to sign this into law. It would be the first uh, bill of its kind in the entire country to explicitly ban TikTok. Now, we've seen a bunch of other states ban TikTok on state-issued devices. Right. That's become increasingly common. This would ban TikTok within the state, meaning Google and Apple would not be able to have the app available within the jurisdiction of Montana. There could be criminal or civil penalties for a person Uh, who violates that ban on TikTok. Hmm. There are several problems with this. Before we get to the (laughs) constitutional issues, there's the matter of enforcement. Uh Both Google and Apple have said that this is virtually impossible to enforce. They can't tailor an app store so that an app is just not available in a single state in the United States. That's Hmm. just beyond their current capabilities. Uh, I can certainly understand why it would not be in their interest to have that capability. Yeah, uh, They don't want to be beholden to a bunch of over-aggressive state legislatures who are just banning applications. Right. Uh, <laughs> just, I'm sorry. I, I, forgive me, but I just I couldn't help thinking, imagine what happened if Florida got their hands on this kind of uh, thing, right? <laughs> yes. Disney Plus would certainly not be available there. You'd have, right. to, you'd have to watch bootlegged versions of The Old Little Mermaid. Right, right. Uh, then there's the question of the border. Montana uh, is adjacent to a bunch of other United States. I'm no geography expert, but I believe it touches <laughs> Wyoming, Idaho. Mm-hmm. Uh Because it is in close proximity to those states, and there are some border towns. I remember West Yellowstone National Park is in in Montana. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
you could be connecting to a cell phone tower in another state to download TikTok, and there's some question about whether that would actually violate the statute. Hmm. Uh, So those are just two practical problems. People using VPNs or uh, disguising their location would be an obvious way to get around this ban. Hmm. Uh, So it's almost certainly going to be unworkable. That's almost besides the point because what we're really interested in here is the major constitutional issues. Okay. And I'll try and run through them. There was actually a really good Tech Dirt article that listed some potential constitutional problems here. Hmm. The first is what's called a bill of attainder. So the Constitution provides laws that target certain individuals or certain companies. It's a little unclear how that would apply to legislation passed in a state legislature, Uh, But certainly courts would look disfavorably on that. That's why most well-crafted laws that do things like ban TikTok are drafted in a way that doesn't make it obvious that you're targeting one company. Hmm. Uh, So, for example, when Congress tries to defund Planned Parenthood, they'll say no funds in this should be available to a national abortion provider who has more than – 100 and whatever million dollars in revenue. So I see. the effect would be targeting one company, but it's not explicitly targeted at one company. Huh, okay. So that's one problem. Uh, there are the First Amendment rights of TikTok itself. Um, this would basically be the equivalent of the government banning a magazine from printing in a state uh, or the government seizing a printing press. I'm not sure that that's entirely accurate. So I was quoting there from the Tech Dirt article. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think there are some important differences. TikTok is posting third-party content. It's not necessarily their speech. Right. Um, But there is, I think, an argument to be made that you are suppressing the free speech rights of TikTok creators uh, who have a right to have to, to put their content out there. I mean, this is a very popular platform. There are certainly political messages, uh, artistic messages uh, that you really couldn't spread to the masses unless you had access to this platform uh, that has 150 million users within the United States. Hmm. Uh, there are the First Amendment rights of app store operators. They can or at least should be able to determine which uh, applications they do and don't distribute. Uh, So putting a ban on Google and Apple from having this in their app stores would be that kind of uh, inhibition. Then there's this issue, and this is getting really into the legal weeds, so I'll try and gloss over this, of the Dormant Commerce Clause. So, oh, that I old know. chestnut. I know. And for everybody who's going to be too bored by legal mumbo-jumbo, you can just tune out for like 10 seconds. Skip like, ahead. Press the 30-second skip ahead. Yeah, I will try to explain this quickly. But basically, Congress has the power, per the Constitution, to regulate interstate commerce. And the way courts have interpreted that is that states do not have the power to pass laws that inhibit interstate commerce in any way. Hmm. Uh, So it is certainly conceivable that a law like this would be an inhibition on uh, interstate commerce simply because it would force the app stores to use their own resources to make special exceptions for the state of Montana. I mean, the foundational Supreme Court cases on this were about – the state of Iowa coming up with laws banning certain kinds of trucks. Hmm. Uh, and that was a major inhibition on interstate commerce because those trucks had to go around the state of Iowa, which is pretty hard to do if you're on Interstate 80 going across the country. And that would be uh, an improper inhibition on interstate commerce. That's interesting. 
So those are just a few of the issues. Really, the First Amendment ones, uh, I think, are the most serious. And I anticipate that within days of this law being signed, if it is signed, we will see a lawsuit from the ACLU on behalf of TikTok users uh, who are going to have their free speech rights suppressed, at least in the state of Montana. Uh, One, I I think, really interesting element in this uh, Tech Dirt article is they quote, a friend of our podcast, uh, Rihanna Pfefferkorn, noted Stanford academic, Mm -hmm. who says that a lot like this is really uh, the U.S. mimicking China. Mm. Uh, China is the reason we're told we need to ban TikTok. uh, But in trying to ban TikTok, we are acting like the Chinese Communist Party. Our idea, in her words, of countering China is to act more like China, uh, putting up a so-called great firewall that censors its citizens' free access to the flow of information. Uh, And especially, this is true especially because of the popularity of the application. So this will create all all different types of uh, legal problems for the state of Montana. I hope the attorney general for that state uh, has hired some uh, very talented attorneys because they're going to be spending a lot of time defending this law in court. Hmm. Now, can we agree that the main concern here is exfiltration of data? That, that's why they're coming at TikTok? That's the main concern, uh, but some of the findings that are uh, included in the legislation, these pieces of legislation have what are called whereas clauses where they explain the mm-hmm. genesis behind the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and... As part of that whereas paragraph, they talk about how TikTok fails to remove and may even promote dangerous content that directs minors to engage in dangerous activities, including but not limited to throwing objects at moving vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, (laughs) It it gets funnier. Uh, They talk about TikTok inspiring people to light a mirror on fire and then attempting to extinguish it using only one's body parts, (laughs) inducing unconsciousness through oxygen deprivation. Uh, this is true, by These the are way. Oddly specific. I know someone's been <laughs> somebody has been uh, watching too many TikTok videos. Okay. So part of the justification is that our data is sensitive to uh, Chinese, the Chinese government, which right. uh, we've talked about many times on this podcast, has that close relationship with ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok. That's just one basis of uh, the impetus behind this legislation. The legislators here uh, seem to have come up with a finding that TikTok, beyond being uh, making our data vulnerable, is also just dangerous for kids and, mm. and other people who are going to be very impressionable. So I, I just think the way this law is drafted, if it had been narrowly tailored to address this issue of data security, I think it might stand a better chance in court. Um, If you're going to have an inhibition on speech, you better have a darn good reason to have that inhibition on speech. And Mm. perhaps it's at least conceivable uh, that Montana would have been able to convince a judge, a federal judge, that this was uh, fulfilling a compelling state interest on on behalf of Montana. But when we're talking about... um, Protecting people from videos uh, of somebody attempting to break an unsuspecting passerby's skull by tripping him or her into landing face first onto a hard surface, that <laughs> makes this law seem like, frankly, kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I do not see this law being upheld as constitutional if it is signed uh, and assuming that it is challenged. But uh, then again... Courts are doing some weird things these days, Mm -hmm. Uh, so you never know. 
So a couple things come to mind here. Um, first of all, why? Why Montana? Why Why is Montana chosen to lead the way with this? Is is I guess I'm 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 trying to see the potential political posturing here. I mean, we always talk we always talk about uh, you know protect the children. You can always make hay with that one, right? Yes, um, this is sort of the uh, what's Reverend Lovejoy's wife in The Simpsons, right? Think of the children. So, somebody think of the children. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. So, is it partially that? I think it's a large part that. So, the Attorney General in uh, Montana, a guy by the name of Austin Nudson, mm-hmm. uh, is supposedly the person who drafted the bill, and he said. One of the inspirations for the bill is parents complaining to the Montana state government that their kids are uh, getting access to drug suicide and or pornography. Hmm. Uh, but the fact that kids would potentially have access to that, of- that that type of offensive content would not be a justifiable reason to shut off the entire platform. Because if that were true, we would close libraries uh, because they might have some books that are offensive to children. I'm not mm. trying to give the Montana legislature any ideas, right. by the way. Right. Uh, or shutting off any other type of social network because some content might be offensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was certainly a legislative response to this kind of, I don't want to call it a moral panic, uh, mm. but it is sort of a moral panic of parents within the state of Montana not wanting their kids uh, to view this this type of content on their personal devices. Uh, I'm surprised that even if this were the real justification, that they didn't at least pretend that it was about data security. Mm Because I think that would have put them on firmer constitutional ground. Uh, And the fact that this seems so targeted at pretty clear expressions of free speech is going to make the legal posture of this law more difficult to defend. Hmm. I guess the other thing I'm thinking of is this just, to me, emphasizes that what we really need is a federal privacy law. That Pretty much true for every story, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Congress could clearly preempt this state law and other state laws like it mm-hmm. if they were to pass a federal statute that occupied the field. So the federal government in areas where they have jurisdiction can can supersede state power because of the supremacy clause in the Constitution. Uh, And that means that if Congress wanted to pass a statute putting some type of regulation on TikTok, um, which we've seen that they've they've tried to do, uh, I think they would be on firmer ground. At least you'd have a uniform national standard. And this, this wouldn't be the practical difficulty of the app stores trying to restrict this application uh, only in the state of Montana. So it would make things a little bit easier for the companies, and at least theoretically, Congress would have more time to consider the national implications of this type of legislation. So Congress could preempt this, uh, but we've talked about in previous episodes, so far their uh, efforts to curtail TikTok have have not really gone anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there is bipartisan support, but I think it's going to be very difficult to find a package of reforms uh, that could win the support of a Republican House and a Democratic Senate. So I think we're a, a long way from that happening. And in the meantime, you're going to see more states taste, take this type of action, even if they know or suspect that the law is going to be struck down as unconstitutional. Yeah. You could still make a pretty uh, compelling political point by passing a law like this at the state level. 
I wonder too, and and I I don't know the answer to this. So I'm curious on your insights and take on this. It, I'm reminded of um, back, I uh, seem forever ago when um, when Obamacare was making its way through, mm-hmm. right? And uh, you would see statistics that said like, you know, seventy percent of people, bipartisan, uh, don't like Obamacare. But when you dug in, you found that. Um, people on the right didn't like it for one reason and people on the left didn't like it for another reason. Like some people thought it went too far and the other people thought it didn't go far enough. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. And so I wonder if when we talk about bipartisanship for things like federal privacy legislation and having broad support, if you dig in, is that broad support really coming from the same place or not? Yeah, I, I mean, we've seen that with Section 230 reform as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, both parties hate Section 230, but for very different reasons. Right. And so it would be hard to come up with a law that would satisfy all of those justifications. I think that would be true with a TikTok ban. It might be a little bit easier because the end result is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you would be empowering the president or the secretary of commerce to ban TikTok, if they find that it's uh, too closely in cahoots with foreign governments. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are still disagreements among the political parties. And I think uh, as this moves through the legislative process, you're going to start to see more organized opposition as this becomes sort of a real threat when it's clear to people that they're, uh, they have, <laughs> Congress has a loaded gun with real bullets that they're willing to fire. Hmm. I think you're going to have groups like the ACLU come out in full force and talk about the First Amendment implications of this. Yeah. Uh, one potential solution, which uh, I think would satisfy everybody, but that probably will not happen, is for uh, TikTok to be purchased by a U.S. company mm. so that we don't face these overseas data collection concerns. But um, that has thus far not happened, and I think it's wishful thinking to assume that um, ByteDance is just going to sell to uh, some en- enterprising U.S. Uh, customer. Although, who knows? Elon had $40 billion for Twitter, so <laughs> maybe he could spare uh, another 40 to $50 billion to, right, right. to buy TikTok. If you, want, you could take care of the problem by ruining the platform, by having someone incompetent buy it and run it into the ground. Exactly. We certainly have precedent now. <laughs> so just provide, provide uh, zero-interest funding for some billionaire who has <laughs> who has uh, aspirations of, of running a social Side network. note, please don't sure. kick us off Twitter, Elon. <laughs> we love you. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story uh, in the show notes. Again, that is from the New York Times. Uh, my story this week comes from the folks over at Engadget. Uh, this is uh, written by Igor uh, Bonifacic, and it's titled, The FTC Finds a Supplement Maker $600,000 for Review Hijacking Amazon Listings. So uh, this is interesting. This is the first time that the FTC has come after an organization for this thing called Review Hijacking. Um, so uh, let me try to explain what's happening here. So we've got a, a company who makes um, supplements, you know, your vitamins, basically, and uh uh, they make all sorts of supplements for all sorts of different things. And this company is called Nature's Bounty. Yeah, most of these things, by the way, don't actually work, but <laughs> <laughs> that's a subject of a different podcast. Right, right. It's a whole different uh, type of uh, need, perhaps needed regulation, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, lots of people uh, enjoy these and, and they use these and they find value in these. And so, you know, they're widely available. You can go to your local pharmacy and you'll see 
uh, aisles full of these sorts of supplements. And this is a company called Nature's Bounty, uh, and they are one of the big vendors in this sort of thing. So it turns out that on Amazon, if you sell a product, uh, Amazon has a way for you to list highly similar products in the same listing. So for example, what it's meant for is like, let's say that I'm selling a transistor radio on Amazon Mm -hmm. and that radio comes in three different colors. It comes in black, red, and white. So what I can do is I can have the black version of the radio be listed, but then within that listing, you can also click on the one that's white or the one that's red and purchase Either of those. Um, but what that that d- seems sensible. Seems yeah. Sen- yeah, it makes it easier for the consumer. But what it does is it also consolidates all of the reviews for those products, all of the rankings for those products, um, the badges for those products. So if it's uh gets a you know highly popular badge or you know those sorts of things that you see on Amazon, bestseller, you know those kinds of things. Um, and then this all makes sense within that sort of framework, right? If I'm selling something that just comes in different colors, well, what the FTC alleges uh, or concluded, I guess. Right, they, yeah. <laughs> we, we have a, a consent order, meaning uh, right, uh, yeah, right. they admit it, as right. they say in the meme. Yeah, so um, that uh, the Nature's Bounty folks were doing was they were taking advantage of that functionality to put different products in those slots rather than highly similar products, they were putting totally different products in there. And what that did was it meant that those new products, which in this case were not selling very well, were getting the ranking, the rating, and the reviews. The five-star glow. Right, yeah. for products that were selling very well. And in fact, uh, this company, they had some internal communications from this company who where they basically were talking to each other about how, hey, we put these things in here and this was not a popular product, but when we put them in here like this, uh, they said it spiked the second we variated the pages and they continue to grow. What's the lesson here, Nature's Bounty? Do not admit to fraud in your emails. (laughs) If you're going to engage in fraudulent activity, try to do it over the phone where it's less traceable. Okay, uh, I'd say call me crazy, but don't commit fraud. Yeah, I mean, there's there's that too. There's that too. Um, that's probably a, a good place to start. Right. I hope the bar association isn't listening, Ben, as yes. you're giving advice. I'm just for kidding, how to, bar association. How to, commit, how to commit fraud to yeah. our listeners? Um, so I, I just think it's really interesting that this caught the attention of the FTC, and they came after them for it. Yeah, I am actually pretty impressed that the FTC took this action. Like you said, uh, it is the first time that they have countered this type of review hijacking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have a pretty serious consent order uh, that was formed in response to these allegations. It's a $600,000 fine for Bountiful, uh, the parent company here, and bars the company from employing such tactics in the future. Uh, $600,000, probably in the context of their million dollars of revenue, isn't going to break the bank, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly a message to other companies that they shouldn't be engaged in this very clearly fraudulent activity. I mean, it's distorting the market, which is why the FTC is involved. It's changing people's perceptions and therefore their purchasing decisions. So it is absolutely proper 
for the FTC to be involved, and I'm impressed that they were involved here. I think the broader concern is, well, if this one company is doing it and they were caught, uh, is this happening across the entire Amazon platform where people are taking advantage or companies are taking advantage of this functionality to boost products by leeching off five-star reviews for other products? Mm-hmm. Amazon, in response to this case, uh, claims that more than 99% of the products people view on its uh, marketplace contain, quote, only authentic reviews, uh, and that there is an avenue uh, for consumer complaints if the consumer suspects that a company is recommending uh, or or is engaging in this type of deception. Yeah. Uh, 99% sounds really high, yes, but think it does. about how many things that Amazon sells. <laughs> yes, it does. I mean, probably in the last month, you, our listener, uh, on average, has bought how many products do we think uh, off Amazon? Yeah. You know, maybe 15, 20. Multiply that by 330 million people in the United States mm-hmm. and... Uh, that's certainly a lot of products. So even 1% being based on faulty reviews is cause for concern. Uh, So I I, I guess it's good that uh, the spokesperson for Amazon said they're going to be working closely with the FTC to make sure that this type of abuse does not happen on their platform. Yeah, and I suppose when you see something like this, that does get Amazon's attention. So maybe they'll focus on this more where before they weren't. I don't know how much I how much faith I have in this Amazon spokesperson. I I do believe that Amazon is attempting to come at this, but I just think it's so broad and they it's just, we've said this a million times, you know, that uh well we can't police this at scale. Well then maybe you shouldn't do it. Right. 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 Um there's no way they can do this at scale and um you know as our colleague Joe Kerrigan says um when you're looking at reviews on Amazon, throw out all the five-star reviews throw out all the zero-star reviews and make your decision based on the ones in the middle because those are more likely to be authentic. That are authentic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, this gets us into a whole conversation about reviews themselves, Mm -hmm. which, I mean, I I think beyond the allegations here, there are ways in which reviews can be gamed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you question the trustworthiness regardless of the allegations here, but I think... This is a very specific instance of a very, uh, I think, discoverable type of fraud. Right. And it's good to see that our federal regulators have taken notice and have taken action. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. And, of course, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.
Uh, ben, you recently spoke with Alana Cohen from Hacker One, uh, discussing uh, President Biden's cyber strategy and the national budget allocations for cybersecurity. Uh, interesting conversation. Here's Ben speaking with Alana Cohen. When I was in the White House, and I think really until recently, the focus in the government had been on adversary nations, thinking that those nations likely had the possibility and the capability to wreak havoc on our infrastructure. The reality is, and I think that this has largely driven by the colonial um, incident, is that really anyone can uh, wreak havoc on our infrastructure. Um, you know, that we had underestimated the risk of a single criminal group and their ability to exploit a vulnerability leading to an emergency that affects, you know, dozens of states. So, or at least, you know, over a dozen. So what keeps me up at night is just, uh, you know, that there are significant areas where we remain vulnerable and that there are multiple actors who can take advantage of those vulnerabilities. I think that's that rings true. I mean, as somebody who was on the East Coast during the colonial pipeline disaster and saw gas lines for really the first time in, in my conscious life, uh, it seems like there is sort of this increased public consciousness of the kinetic effects of cyber incidents. Can you talk a little bit about how you could leverage that sort of newfound awareness into potential policy changes, uh, especially at the federal level? Absolutely. And I think you see that in the national cybersecurity strategy. Um, you know, there are folks who are in the White House who talk about the colonial um, pipeline incident as uh, an awakening um, because of the, the potential impact there. And so that is primarily why the strategy calls for less of a voluntary approach to critical infrastructure cybersecurity and more toward a, you know, set of mandatory requirements that they are looking to implement. Um, you know, the, the threat landscape we're in is sophisticated and, you know, we need to have a whole of nation approach when we're tackling such serious problems because nobody wants to have service disruptions or, you know, uh, breaches that can lead to disruptions of such significant effect. Do you think that the vulnerabilities uh, in our critical infrastructure are largely technical vulnerabilities, or do you think there are also kind of governance issues uh, that are inhibiting, particularly in the uh, private sector, our ability to respond to these incidents? I think it's probably a combination of both. Um, I think we're in this situation we're in uh, because of the constantly evolving landscape, but also there has in certain industries, there's been, you know, a lack of resources, you know, perhaps budgetary constraints, a workforce shortage, right? So there are any number of, um, of shortcomings that lead to the situation we're in. So... I've done a little bit of work recently just here in Maryland, um, just in the world of policy consulting, on uh, inquiring from some of the local utilities about how amenable they'd be to 
mandatory cybersecurity requirements. And I guess to put it mildly, uh, there's definitely been some pushback. So I guess my question for you is, uh, based on your experience, how do we work with that? How do we work with that pushback and how do we convince these utilities and other uh, owners of our critical infrastructure that even though it might be more burdensome for them in the short run, that it would benefit all of us in the long run? So I take a somewhat different approach, and I guess that's in part, it's maybe worth me mentioning my background um, for a second here. So uh, I was the former general counsel of the Office of Management and Budget, and the Office of Management and Budget, was, which some called, you know, the most important agency you've never heard of, is the agency where all rules and regulations affecting, you know, that have over a $100 million impact, they all flow through OMB. So I have a slightly different take on regulations. Of course, they can be burdensome and and too broad and too complex, and that stifles innovation in the marketplace, and that is never the intent. Um, but when they're narrowly tailored and they're sophisticated enough to like directly impact the threat landscape, some actors, especially the ones who are interested in, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, addressing the issue as a whole, actually prefer them because then every player in the field is on a level, you know, playing field. And, you know, that that is actually a benefit because it helps ensure that everyone in the private sector is enforcing a consistent set of standards. For those who you spoke with, I would say make sure they participate in the rulemaking process. These rules are meant to be written with the collaboration of industry. That's part of the process. And so, you know, they there should be a lot of cooperation with the private sector as all of these mandates are written. One thing I know you've talked about, and I read uh, this editorial that you wrote in The Hill, uh, is how we need to more closely tailor regulations to the specific industries we're trying to regulate to the size of uh, the purveyors of, of critical infrastructure, the size of these utilities. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of narrow, more narrowly tailoring these types of regulations? Yeah, of course. I mean, you can't you can't impose a rule that that no one could conceivably comply with. That's not the goal. The goal, I said, is not these overly burdensome and complex regs because then they'll be ineffective. And there would be no enforcement of those rules because, you know, you'd have an entire industry failing to adhere to them. So you do need to have, as I mentioned, very, you know, outcome-oriented and flexible and tailored regs. And not all sectors are the same. I mean, I think that's what I put in that op-ed, right? You have water services are going to be different than healthcare, which is going to be different than transportation generally. And so you need to make sure, and each of those agencies, you know, it, or, I'm sorry, each of those areas are are further, some are further along than others in terms of their cybersecurity uh, sophistication. And so you really do have to tailor uh, the rules to make sure that different sectors can be treated differently, uh, but all for the same outcome, which is a security across the board. Can you talk a little bit about coordinated vulnerability disclosure? And um, I know you mentioned that as as a 
favorable aspect of the administration's cybersecurity strategy, but can you talk about its advantages in your view? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that question. So the cybersecurity strategy calls for coordinated vulnerability disclosure across all sectors for all technologies. And that's because, look, the best way to respond to a breach is to prevent it from happening in the first place. The strategy calls it out because it is so successful in helping uh, companies and the government identify cybersecurity flaws in their system so they can actually you know, mitigate those vulnerabilities, correct them, and prevent cyber criminals from exploiting them. So we're really thrilled that the, you know, HackerOne, of course, does provide, you know, cybersecurity services. And, you know, we are the leading expert on coordinated vulnerability disclosure. And so we're delighted that they called, that the government called out that specifically because we do think it can really help prevent breaches from happening. Interesting. So I guess slightly switching gears, there are kind of two avenues to a federal cybersecurity strategy. There's the policymaking uh, avenue um, and the rulemaking process, and then there's budgeting. And I guess taking advantage of your expertise uh, from (laughs) OMB, uh, where do you see, uh, I guess, in terms of properly allocating federal resources to these cyber threats? Are there areas uh, where you think uh, we could use improvement or where money could potentially be reallocated where we're not allocating enough? So there are two aspects of this strategy. You know, the first aspect is the amount of effort it takes in order to put out a strategy like this really does help the entire government see a, like, come together and work toward a common goal. And, but it is a blueprint. The strategy is, is in essence, just a blueprint. Now, some of these things they've already done they have the authority to do and they've already taken action, but others will require funding. And so it's no coincidence that the White House put out their um, their budget just a few weeks after putting out the strategy. And in it, they called for, I think, a 13% increase in cybersecurity for, for civilian agencies. So that's a total of $12.7 billion dollars. So that's sizable, a sizable increase, especially given last year, there was also a pretty sizable increase. But look, you know, it requires, it will, in order to implement that budget, it will require a lot of coordination between Congress and the administration. And, you know, I hope that they'll ultimately get there because it will, I think, you know, if you, if you read the president's budget, you'll see you know, he's interested in a more diverse cybersecurity workforce, transitioning legacy systems in the government to more modern infrastructure. And then, of course, like further enabling um, the zero trust architecture among, you know, many, many other things. But those are, we have to be able to prioritize, um, you know, resources for cybersecurity in order to be able to implement the vast majority of the, um, of the actions in the strategy. I know a budget, our a president's budget proposal is rarely received well on Capitol Hill, and this was certainly uh, no exception. And there are going to be months of negotiations, and uh, we have some deadlines with the debt ceiling and September 30th with the end of the fiscal year. In terms of 
sort of handicapping where you foresee some controversy in the realm of, of cybersecurity or what, what might be some issues uh, in this subject area where um, there might be snags in negotiations based on your experience or just your view of the, uh, of the landscape? Yeah, well, look, you know, we have some narrow majorities in Congress, a divided Congress. Cybersecurity is actually one of those rare areas where there is a lot of bipartisan cooperation. And so if anything, you know, whether there's the desire to have this particular program funded, you know, exactly the way the president proposes or that that program is, you know, who knows. But it is, I do think it's easy for this cybersecurity aspect to just get caught up in the, you know, entire uh, sort of political posture that we find ourselves in where you have, you know, a desire to both increase the debt ceiling and, you know, pass funding bills that will go much, will be much broader than just cybersecurity. I have long since stopped predicting what Congress will and won't do. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a wise, uh, a wise choice on your part. Yeah. yeah um, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that, but I do want to say like, I think there really is, and this is an area where bipartisan cooperation is, is available and it's important for our collective security. I think so too. And it's, it has been promising that generally cybersecurity has not uh, been befallen by polarization <laughs> the way a lot of other issues are. Um, That's true. Now that you are on the private side, is there a message that you would give to industry generally about uh, the promise and, and perils of federal regulation and how they can be constructive partners uh, in participating and implementing the cybersecurity strategy? Well, I would say that the promise is really, look, there's a rulemaking process. That process requires, you know, a notice and comment period. So whatever the government is thinking in the form of regulation, it has to publish in what's called the Federal Register and ask industry for comment. Um, how will this affect you? What have we thought about? What are we not thinking about? Um, and I would just encourage those who might be wary of the of the rulemaking process to to be more active participants in it. You don't have to be the former general counsel of the Office of Management and Budget in order to read those notices and participate. Um, it really is available to everyone. And so, you know, that will definitely shape what the rules ultimately look like and how they'll be applied to, to various sectors. So that's a lot of promise, actually. And, you know, I would say not participating would result in the peril just because, you know, not the government can't possibly know how every thing that they're thinking about will ultimately affect private industry. You know, I, I hate to please just be a participant in, you know, the civic process. That's all. That's like my call to action. All 
right. Uh, interesting conversation, Ben. Boy, what a great guest. Uh, just super knowledgeable and what a broad range of experience. Yeah. I mean, having that experience in OMB, uh, being on the inside and knowing how the regulatory process works, mm-hmm. uh, we don't often get a chance to speak to people who have had that type of high-level position. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting, you know, her insights um, – Kind of mirroring what we've discussed here today, you know, just how hard it is to get anything through Congress. This sort of sense of resignation that <laughs> this is why we can't have nicer things, right? I know. I feel like so many of our interviews end on that depressing note where it's yeah. like if Congress could just get its act together and step in, we could improve our nation's cybersecurity posture. Um, we could institute all of these very practical reforms that in a perfect world, uh, you know, we could snap our fingers and they would come into existence. But Congress is just not like that. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, again, our thanks to Alana Cohen from HackerOne for joining us and sharing her expertise and insights. We do appreciate her taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>